Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. show and our weekend review there was lots of great action but it's hard to avoid two more premier league managers are now unemployed after leicester dropped to the relegation zone brendan rogers was duly sent home and chelsea remained the leaders at setting money on fire after graham potter (laughs) failed to inspire two managers sacked and a bloated squad it's all going pretty smoothly for Mr. Todd. Elsewhere, it was a good weekend for a former Blues coach as Bayern Munich were completely beyond reproach. Thomas Tuchel made a perfect introduction as Borussia Dortmund practiced the fine art of self-destruction. Man City and Arsenal both won 4-1. Milan went to Naples and had some fun. PSG were completely undone and St. Louis's reign of terror is Done. Oh, I'm done with done there. That's not good. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who loves the smell of Premier League managerial napalm in the morning, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. It has been a wild weekend for sure. I like in your sort of setup that Todd Bowley is effectively the Joker from The Dark Knight, just setting the giant pile of money on fire, which I think makes Graham Potter the Russian gangster who uh, meets a bad fate in that movie. So I think the analogy continues. So Todd Bowley's just an agent of chaos. Is this what this is all about then? I, I think Thomas Tuchel would say that, and I think a lot of Chelsea supporters would probably say that too. <laughs> well, 13 Premier League coaches have now lost their jobs this season, so Chaos League deserves wow. a Chaos owner, I suppose, wow. Tay-Tay. There we are. Uh, joining mm. us, Taylor, a man who's been sick this weekend, but at least he got to see a John McGinn stutter help a man get fired, <laughs> Graham Rudman. Hello. Hello, Ryan Billy. Yes, that did make me feel a lot better on Saturday evening. I did watch that game from the comfort of my own bed. In fact, I spent most of Saturday in my bed with illness. What I think happened was Saturday was the first day that I really believe Sterling Albion are going to win the title. We won 3-0. Dumbarton, uh, they lost on Saturday. And so my body had an allergic reaction to that. This is not what I signed up for. Joy. 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 Yeah, an allergic success. reaction to joy. An allergic reaction to my team being successful and feeling happy about my team. This is not what I signed up for. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that on both counts, Graham. But I, I like the idea of the gods of karma up there saying, oh, Graham's about to experience some positivity. Let's strike him down. Get him to bed. Get him to bed. <laughs> I, I also picture Graham just very, very ill, very weak in bed. His wife comes in to check on him and he just very feebly says, give me John McGinn. And then she turns on the screen. He <laughs> yeah. scores the goal. Graham back here to record. Here we are. No, ve- very feebly me going, we've got McGinn. <laughs> John McGinn. <laughs> Put his backside to my veins. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Uh, joining us, gents, a man who's witnessed record-breaking soccer crowds in his hometown this weekend, Arizona Joe Lowry. Howdy doody. 
I I do the good, Ryan Bailey. How do you do the <laughs> How do you do to you? We'll get to that in a second. Um, everything that just happened was the best thing that's ever happened on this show. So I just want to get that out there right now. Graham's feeble voice and John McGinn. That doesn't get any better than that. Wow. Um, yeah, that's that's the best part of my Monday so far. Otherwise, yeah, I got to go out to Phoenix Rising's home opener in their their new location. Not really a new stadium. They just kind of picked up the pop up stadium from where it was in sort of the the South Chandler area, which is a, a suburb of Phoenix, and then moved it into the more downtown central Phoenix area. Like, I don't know if they just got a giant forklift and plopped it down in a new place. I imagine they took it apart. But it was great to be out there on Saturday. It was a 2-2 draw against Landon Donovan's San Diego loyal team, even though Landon Donovan is no longer managing that team. He's still involved. And it was a it was a good atmosphere. 10,000-plus new records, uh, new record for fans in attendance, and it was great to be one of the folks that were there to see it in person. I want to see how they moved that stadium because I've seen videos of old houses in San Francisco that mm-hmm. they move on the back of trucks. And now I'm picturing the same thing with Phoenix Rising Stadium. I like, Graham, that these are your two main interest points. Pizza, which we've talked about before, <laughs> and how they move large structures from one area to the other. This is yeah. what Graham watches on YouTube when he can't fall asleep. That's what I live for. It was, it's one guy, he had a van, they put the stadium on the van, and then he held onto it with one hand out the window, and they drove to downtown and dropped it off. It was pretty yeah, efficient, Drogba. I think. Yeah, it's Drogba. <laughs> yes, yes. He could do that. I believe Drogba could actually pull that off. Mm. Well, now we know what Erling Haaland was doing over the weekend, because he wasn't playing for Man City. That's just what he was doing. He was moving Phoenix's stadium. There we go. We found him. Uh, there's plenty to talk about. We should probably get to the weekend action. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show, by the way, if you want to check out our bonus content. Did you take any video or anything, Joe, when you were in I did, and I forgot to post it. It's on my phone right now, and I will nice. post it potentially while someone else is talking on this show. I'm glad I called you out on air for that then. Thank and you. you had the right <laughs> response. Excellent. Thank you very much. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for that one. In the meantime, let's get to the main news. Graeme, it was a curious weekend in the Premier League because basically there was one fixture where there wasn't really anything at stake. It was Chelsea versus Aston Villa. Every other yeah. game had like relegation or title or top four uh, permutations. Turns out this one had the biggest headlines coming out of it with Aston Villa coming out with a 2-0 win. Um, the 13th managerial departure of the season, as I mentioned there. A oh boy, a oh boy, Graeme, a oh boy. Yeah, April isn't usually sacking season in the Premier League, so I'm not entirely sure what's happened this season because we've had uh, two managers leave and then Patrick Vieira left a couple weeks ago. As well, Graham Potter sacked as Chelsea manager on Sunday evening. I th- The timing was surprising to me because obviously they got rid of him after the final international break of the season. So logically you're thinking, if you're going to make a change, make it while a new manager will have two weeks on the training ground with a lot of the players to impose some new ideas. And obviously Chelsea don't have that anymore. I do feel sorry for Graham Potter because he was hired by Chelsea with the idea that he'd be a project manager and that he'd get time, and ultimately ultimately, they've got rid of him after six months. And I think this entire episode reflects worse on Chelsea and on Todd Bowley than it does on Graham Potter. I, I don't think he'll get another top job immediately. I don't think he'll get the Spurs job. I know he's been linked with that. I would be very surprised if Spurs went down that route. But I do think people will sympathise with what he had to endure at a very chaotic club with an owner who seems to be all over the place, as Taylor said. Uh, Taylor said he's kind of the Joker agent, agent mm. of chaos at the moment. So first, Chelsea got rid of a proven manager a week after the transfer window closed earlier this season. Um, they signed Aubameyang for that manager. Pierre Emerick Aubameyang is still at Chelsea, not playing. Then they got in a project manager who needed a preseason to get things straight. 
they signed him countless players who he didn't really want or we got the sense he didn't really want on long-term deals and then they sacked him after after the last international break of the season when there's no opportunity to get a new manager and, and give them some time. So that is just complete galaxy brain from Chelsea. And Bole, ultimately Chelsea paid £22 million for 21 goals and 12 wins, which... Yeah. It's not a great conversion rate, really. Record-breaking compensation for a manager, I believe. That 21, 22 million has they paid to Brighton for that. He had 50 million left on his contract. He's going to receive a significant part of that sum, apparently. Taylor, as as Graham outlined there, the timeline very nicely. If they, you know, they bought a load of players for a manager they fired after a week, and then they fired this most recent manager after an international break, clearly they... the intention to get someone in, like Potter in is to give him time. It's not a big name that big players will say, right, this, mm. this is, you know, it's, it's not a Mourinho, it's not a Poch, it's not one of those names. It's a, it's a manager that deserves time. So why bother do it at all if you're not going to give him that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is a question best left to the Chelsea executives, but I can give you my take, which is basically that they aren't sure what they want to do. Uh, because if you are building a team slowly and building a team around a manager's identity and style, then you don't just like shove in a bunch of attackers and hope that he figures it out. We talked about this in the, in the when the window closed. We talked about when they pursued a number of different players that didn't seem to solve the obvious problems with that Chelsea team, but then didn't get get rid of anybody. How do you keep what 40 senior players happy? How do you keep everybody involved in training? How do you make it so that you aren't just kind of randomly rotating or at least seemingly randomly rotating? And it does feel like that's what Grand Potter ended up having to do. So, in some ways, it makes sense that you sack a manager for the lack of, of response, the lack of points. Like It doesn't seem like they're figuring things out. But at the same time, this is also a monster of their creation, I would say, and not his. And I, I share Graham's consternation about the timing of this departure. We've seen managers get sacked in April, but that's normally when there is a relegation battle and you want to spice things up. Or if a club who should be or expected to be in the top four are mathematically eliminated – then I think sometimes you'll have clauses triggered where you can, uh, Manchester United did it with David Moyes, that once you are eliminated, you can sack a manager with a smaller payout. And it does sound like Graham Potter is working with Chelsea, whatever that means, uh, so that they don't have to pay him the full amount of money due, because I think that would be, if not crippling to them, a big old problem for them. But it still just doesn't make much sense to me, especially after the international window, as Graham already outlined. And then with the games coming up, it feels like you could have given a new manager a little bit more time to bet in. It also sounds like they don't know who that manager will be. Lots of reporting linking them with Julian Nagelsmann, but there were no conversations had beforehand the way Bayern had with Thomas Tuchel. And it is a strange thing that, like as many people have pointed out, if Nagelsmann comes into Chelsea, then it's the manager who was fired from the club who hired the manager that Chelsea fired mid-season. It's a very strange <laughs> cycle of managerial firings that led us to this position. <laughs> Oh, boy. Joe, I mean, amongst all this, we've got to give credit to Unai Emery for pulling off this win. <laughs> I think, you know, they, he came to the club. He's had a relatively similar amount of time at Aston Villa to what Potter had at Chelsea, and he's turned this club completely around. Uh, when when these two teams played last October, they were separated by 12 league places. Only goal difference separated them before this game mm. as well. I mean, it's not it's apples to oranges, obviously, the circumstances they've had, but it does show you that, it kind of is it's a bit damning of Potter that he hasn't with all the resources been able to push this team along at all it has I mean things things very clearly have not worked at Chelsea and I'm having trouble I think as all of us are no one's come out like super hot or or passionate about like this is what happened this is what went wrong 
And, you know, we've watched this team play. There's any number of things that you could pick out as things that have gone wrong. There's things behind the scenes that we can infer have gone wrong. There's things stemming from the ownership that, that we can infer have gone wrong. But it, it's difficult to know exactly to sort through all of this, this muck to figure out, okay, who's responsible for this? And in all likelihood, there's a number of people that are responsible for this. I do think Graham Potter is one of those people. I don't think this team played particularly well under him, and he does have a lot of resources at his disposal. To continue to fall in the way that they have is is not an encouraging sign, right? Chelsea are in the bottom half of the Premier League right now, which is an absurd thing when you have this much money and you have this many resources. It's absolutely insane. You know, I, I, I'm not surprised that Chelsea make this decision. I saw, I think it was an article in The Athletic by Simon Johnson, who's one of the, the folks that they have there who writes about Chelsea. And, you know, he talked about how Potter was supposed to be a project manager, right? That that in, in behind the scenes, Todd Bowley and company, who also own part of the LA Dodgers, were comparing, you know, we're going to give Potter time. We're comparing this Potter situation to Dave Roberts, who's the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers and, and won a World Series with them. And it took him five years in the job to actually get over the line and do that. Along the way, though, the Dodgers were making the playoffs. Like Along the way, they were still one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. Chelsea right now didn't end up giving Potter time. It's it's really, really hard to give somebody time when you suck, right? It's, it's really, really hard, especially in professional sports at this level when Chelsea are one of the richest and most ambitious clubs in the world. So I, I don't know that firing Potter was the right idea. I was behind the, the, the decision to hire him in the first place. But things clearly didn't work out, and... Maybe it's for the best that you cut ties now and you get you get Nogglesman. I honestly, this whole situation is dizzying. Joe heard on all of that. Where I still end up confused is to continue the Dodgers analogy for a moment. Chelsea in this situation feel like if the Dodgers went to that manager whose name I've already Dave Roberts was it? Yep. There we go. I remembered things. Yay. Uh, and said, like, good news. We signed you six first basemen and four right fielders. Go right. win the title. Like, it's 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 sort of they loaded up in spots that I'm not sure were critical as opposed to, you know, pitching and shortstop and hitting and all that good stuff. Uh, and, and, and then kind of, I think, just were like, all right, he'll figure this out. We gave him a bunch of talent. And when he didn't, it feels to me like they didn't really know what else to do. And that's where, like, my answer to why now with Sack and Graham Potter, aside from that he hasn't achieved the way they wanted to, the lowest, what, points per game of any Chelsea manager who managed 20 or more games, only 7 and 22 or whatever, uh, would just be that I think other clubs were doing it. <laughs> like, like, with the way Chelsea had been run, I, I sort of believe that Todd Bowley looked around and was like, well, Bayern sacked their manager and Spurs sacked their manager, so, like, w- other clubs are doing it. We're not going to be a laughingstock. Let's just go ahead and do it. Like, yeah. that makes as much sense to me as anything else when it comes to the timing of this one. And I, I don't know, if you're Julian Nagelsmann, I guess between Spurs and Chelsea, there are certainly strengths for each one. There are certain drawbacks to each one. I'm not genuinely not sure if either one really appeals more than the other, because Chelsea, you're going to get money, you're going to have a huge squad, but also... You've got to try to figure out how to make this bloated thing work. And also, if they don't make the Champions League, I don't know how much money they will be able to spend this summer. Spurs have long been criticized for not spending. And even when they do, they don't really hit their marks. So if you're Julian Nagelsmann looking at both of those clubs, there is certainly appeal. But there is also maybe appeal to looking around and seeing if anybody else is hiring at the end of this season. Yeah, boy. And I'm sure they will be. These these managers drop in like flies. I, I wrote in my notes, I made some notes on Saturday evening, Taylor, after the Chelsea game. He definitely won't be fired this weekend because they've got Liverpool on Tuesday, Real Madrid next week. There's no way, like, this is bad, but there's no way he goes. And then the next morning, oh, okay. They uh, they did do it. Yeah, I guess being charitable, if you think you can get somebody in who can be your 
permanent or theoretically permanent manager. You give them an opportunity with a game against Liverpool, who are not the Liverpool they've been in seasons past. And that gives you at least one game of experience before Real Madrid. And maybe there was a feeling of, we could still win that one. Maybe we end up winning the Champions League. Chelsea have pre- previous when it comes to sacking a manager and then going on to win the uh, the Champions League that season with the interim slash temporary future manager. Uh, so maybe that's what they're going for here. I can see that argument as well. It doesn't really put them on the strongest footing and they don't have a like a lead candidate that they've already spoken to as far as I know. So that also doesn't seem like it's going to happen in short order. So lots of potential explanations. I'm sure more will come out. But for right now, uh, if I'm a Chelsea supporter, I'm feeling pretty frustrated yeah. by the way things are going. It has been crazy in the Premier League. And the stat, the fact that underlines that for me is that Roberto De Zerbi is the 11th longest serving manager in the Premier League currently. He was appointed (laughs) in September. Nuts. (laughs) Absolute madness. Oh, dear. Yeah. Nogglesman is one of the rumoured coaches who may have been given the job by the time we finish this podcast. That's perfectly possible. Pochettino's on the list. Luis Enrique, Oliver Glasner, Eintracht Frankfurt and Ruben Deserbi as well, I think, has been mentioned, which is the funniest option. Easily. If if he goes to Chelsea and then Brighton (laughs) rehire Graham Potter, I'd assume that Chelsea would have to pay a fee to Brighton. So essentially Brighton end up with the same manager, but with like 40 million in their pocket for it. That's the funniest option. We've already set up the bank transfer to Brighton for the last one. It would just be (laughs) easier for admin if we just get it as well. What Um, did Bayern have to pay Leipzig when they brought in Nagelsmann? Was it 20 million euros? Yeah, some. It's 20 million euros, something similar, yeah. So maybe it's just Todd Bowley wanted, to, he was like, no, they're, they're beating us now in terms of spending money on a manager that, that they then sacked. We've got to beat them there. We've got to spend more and then sack that manager. And now Graham Potter at 20 million pounds, I think, would be uh, a very expensive transfer to then be sacked as manager. Indeed. Uh, one other sacking we should mention from the Premier League weekend, Brendan Rodgers seeing out his last Leicester game after Roy Hodgson uh, saw him off in his first game back as Crystal Palace manager. <laughs> uh, 2-1 win for Palace over Leicester with a 94th minute winner sealing Rodgers' fate, which seems it's quite a marginal, isn't it, Graham, to uh, lose your job like that? But uh, obviously it's been coming. Uh, Leicester dropped into the relegation zone with that loss. They're on a seven-match winless run. But Roy Hodgson sort of, yeah, just coming in, shades on. Rogers out. Yeah, I, I think I said a number of weeks ago that the Premier League relegation battle this season is just a case of which club can get the biggest new manager bounce. And that that genuinely <laughs> has been the case throughout the, the bottom of the, the, the league. I feel very differently to this managerial departure than Graham Potter. I think this probably did have to happen. Rodgers, he he achieved a great deal at Leicester City. He won the FA Cup. He was a, a game away in back-to-back seasons for, from qualifying for the Champions League. And that will be the big regret that Leicester weren't able to finish in the top four those two seasons. But this year, um, I think I might have actually, this is one of my better tips from our preview episodes, but I think I might have tipped Leicester for for relegation this season because you could see the problems that they had. Rodgers wasn't able to find solutions to those problems. And um, I don't think he handled the generational transition very well within that squad. They still rely on Johnny Evans in defence. There's been no succession plan for Jamie Vardy. They sold Kasper Schmeichel and just didn't bother to replace him at the start of the season. Danny Ward has been their goalkeeper this year. And Rodgers might argue that's down to a lack of recruitment, something that is outside of his hands. And I get that. But it just felt like he was kind of resigned to Leicester having a difficult season from early on. And they need someone who can just come in and galvanize that squad because he has not been doing that for a while now. Going back to uh, his tenure as Liverpool manager, and I think even Swansea a little bit, 
there is a feeling, uh, I remember like the gate guard at Liverpool saying that Brendan Rodgers like never spoke to him the entire time he worked there and Jurgen Klopp came in and like introduced the guard to his whole family on his first day or something like that. I think there is about Brendan Rodgers a, a sort of coldness, a I am I am your manager, we will be at a distance. There is a difference between like officers and the enlisted men uh, mentality with Brendan Rodgers. And so from what I've heard, he's very much a systems yeah. manager, execute the system, execute the system in training, and we will be just fine. But part of that requires refresh to keep the squad competitive but also to keep people moving because the system can get a little bit dull at times and if you Mm -hmm. have the people there long term it tends to wear it tends to kind of break down and not be nearly as efficient and I think that's what we've seen with Leicester this season and the refresh part that you mentioned there Taylor has been the problem for him over over the course of his entire managerial career at Liverpool obviously had a great deal of success there but then Luis Suarez leaves he never found a way to evolve that team. Even at Celtic, he comes in, builds a historically strong team. Towards the end of his time at Celtic, he was still relatively successful because Rangers weren't really up to much at that time, but that team was fraying around the edges. Same thing has happened at Leicester. He comes in, he builds a successful team, but then when he needs to evolve that team, he doesn't have the answer. So people talk about Mourinho and Conte having three-season cycles. I think similar as as, as the case with Rodgers. I do think... To be fair to him for a moment, from everything I read, it sounds like he did have plans for how to kind of evolve the team, how to move on, which players he wanted brought in, and there just wasn't money. There were financial fair play issues at Leicester combined with just a lack of spending, and I think that then it's a things can be two things element because at the same time, I think there were players that Brendan Rodgers had said, they're not good enough, they're surplus to requirement, we don't need them, they don't fit the system, oh, I'm not getting anybody? Well, then that player is coming back and we're not going to sell that player. And now I've got to try to find a way to get them in. And it does seem like he burned some bridges along the way and then tried to unburn those bridges, which isn't how fire works. Uh, And so I think at the end had a squad that wasn't particularly motivated, that didn't really come together in the way that they needed to and have in the past. And when you kind of have that threadbare approach, you have to have everybody pulling in the same direction or you are especially in trouble as Leicester find themselves now. Indeed, plenty of teams in trouble, Taylor. The the relegation battle looks like it goes up to 12th place at the yeah. moment. Palace on 30 points. You've got Wolves below them, then West Ham, Nottingham Forest, Bournemouth, Leeds, Everton, Leicester, and Southampton rock bottom at the moment. Feels, feels Graham, like there might be a couple more managerial firings coming up. Like well, David Moyes is hanging on, right? Yeah, well, the thing with David Moyes and West Ham was they won at the weekend there. They went from 19th, I believe, up to 14th, I think, they're sitting in the table, which illustrates just how tight it is down there. Steve Cooper, there's some reporting around him at the moment. Nottingham Forest um, backed him earlier in the season by giving him a new contract when I I think a lot of people expected him to be sacked. Now Nottingham Forest, uh, their nerve has been tested now that they've been sucked back into the relegation battle. So I think their next game is against Leeds United. And if that was to go poorly for him, then I think that could be 14 managerial departures in the Premier League this season, which would be remarkable, utterly remarkable. Ray Hodgson definitely knows he's Crystal Palace manager, right? Like, (laughs) we're, we're sure on that. There were moments in that game where he could not have looked more like the... The, the good-natured, loving grandpa who they, they get the 94th-minute winner and he's just sort of like, oh, good for you, honey. Like, he was just very, yeah. very, just like happy on the sidelines, smiling. He reminded me <laughs> of, of, a, of a good-natured grandpa who was mostly certain that he was the manager of Crystal Palace. I loved his post-match interview. So I've, I've written about Roy Hodgson going back to Palace. I don't think it's a great appointment. I think it's a backward step, even if he keeps them up. But with a big win in his first game, he comes out after the match and basically credited Patrick Vieira for all the work that he'd done, which I thought was really sweet. He's actually. a gentleman. And He's a lovely yeah, man. He is a gentleman, just maybe not a particularly modern yeah. manager well, there is that. in 2023. 
Maybe not. Classy fella, all the same. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about some actual soccer, including but not limited to De Classica, Man City, Liverpool, and much more. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk about some soccer, shall we? Let's head to the Bundesliga, where we had the top of the table clash between Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund over the weekend, with, of course, the inevitable happening, a 4-2 win for Bayern. Bayern leapfrogging Dortmund to top the table. As we all knew they would, Bayern 3-0 up after 23 minutes as Dortmund pretty much went into full collapse mode. Joe, um... Well, actually, it was quite amusing watching on Sky Italia with the Italian commentary. That first goal when it went in, I wrote this down. It was so good. The Italian commentary was "Mamma mia, mamma mia, mamma mia, terrible." Pretty good. Right? <laughs> so I want to I want to turn this around to the group. <laughs> I think this might have been from Gregor Kobel, the worst goalkeeper howler I have ever seen. Or at least, if better. that's not true. Yeah, he should have should have done better. Got to make contact there, or at least the funniest, right? Like it's the one that best lends itself to yakety sacks playing in the background, like over and over again. Have, have any of you guys seen, at least in recent memory, a worse howler than this? Because this this completely changed the game early on. Dortmund didn't start badly, but I, Ryan, I cannot believe this happened. Have you seen something like this before? The, the worst howler since uh, uh, Graham Potter was hardest Chelsea manager. Aren't <laughs> jo- Joe, the only one that like comes close in my immediate memory is the scott carson one for england that was scott carson right where the ball bounces over his foot no 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 okay okay so it was ryan Ryan frantically saying no means yes uh that's a weird way to say that uh but (laughs) in this case i think even that one it it bounces it hits a little divot in the ground and bounces over his foot here i think there is a little bit of like awkwardness to the trajectory but no joe you're right there's no reason he's even really coming for this one because the ball has such speed on it up makano hits it with such speed that it would have rolled all the way to him i don't think anybody was getting to it so he could have just collected it. I also think, I haven't seen the replays, I think Leroy Sana, it would have gone to VAR for sure as to whether or not he was offside. I think it's why he doesn't touch the ball as it rolls in, because he he maybe knew it was questionable. So there are so many other things that could have happened in this one that he just did not need to make this play. And it is just a horrific whiff that he doesn't even look back either and just knows. Like, as soon as he misses, he just looks straight up and knows it's going in. Yep. It's There's so much time for him to suffer before it actually goes in. It is... <laughs> It is a very, very bad goal. My all-time favorite example, Graham might remember this one from the 90s, Tim Flowers in goal for Blackburn. I think it was Stan Collymore that put like a pee roller along the floor and it just hit, Tim Flowers goes down to collect just like very, very soft shot and it just bobbles on a piece of turf and goes over his shoulder into the back of the net. Tim Flowers doesn't touch the ball at all and he just looks over his shoulder like, 
did did that just happen? That was uh-huh. how the Premier League fields used to look like ploughed fields back in the nineties. The Peter Enkelman one for Villa against Birmingham City always stands out in, in the mind. Th- the th- throw in the ball is thrown back to him. It bobbles over his foot. But the worst uh, goalkeeping mistake I've ever seen. I had to Google who it was because I couldn't quite remember. But three years ago, Grenoble goalkeeper goalkeeper Bryce Mablu. He threw the ball into his own net. <laughs> you need to go and Google this. So, like FIFA glitch it, style? You know, yeah, so you know when <laughs> goalkeepers throw it out and they kind of do this sort of hooked throw, he yeah. gets it all wrong and he hooks it oh, f- yeah. far too much and it oh, just yeah. goes, he just hooks it all the way behind <laughs> him into his own goal. YouTube it. That, That's incredible. That, that name sounds like a French exclamation of like, like despair. Presque yeah. bleu. Presque it bleu. is now. It is now. <laughs> Absolutely it is. I, uh, so, I, I just couldn't believe this happened. I truly could not believe this happened. There, there have been a lot of good goalkeeper howlers for sure. This one is on my Mount Rushmore to say the least. I, it, it felt like this was inevitable, right? We talked about this, the four of us, on the big thing last week before we lost Graham to a tragic skiing accident. Graham, hope you're well. Um, you know, it, it, it always felt like this was coming, right? Regardless of whether it was Tuchel or Nagelsmann, you know, it, it felt like Bayern have the talent advantage. They're going to be able to get the job done. And the title race is not wrapped up now, right? This just flips the top two from Bayern being a point behind Dortmund to now being two points up. So things can still happen. But Tuchel comes in, doesn't do anything revolutionary on the tactical side. Like, there was nothing mind-blowing in this game. He he gave an interview with ESPN after the match and said, you know, we wanted to give the players some things to latch onto, like like give them some direction, but he wasn't trying to overload them with information. They defended in in mostly a 4-2-3-1. The press, you know, had the wingers a little bit higher and, and Thomas Muller a little bit deeper as the number 10, but all of that stuff made sense. They built up out of a back four. It was a mixture of a 4-2-3-1 and a 4-1-5 in possession with Kimmich as the single pivot and Goretzka and Muller pushing into the half spaces. All of this stuff makes sense. Like, it wasn't rocket science. It was Bayern being Bayern and <laughs> Dortmund very much on the narrative side being Dortmund laying down and you blink. And I blinked on Saturday morning and it was 3-0. And it really does feel like from that point on that, you know, Bayern Munich are in the driver's seat for this thing. And if you look at the way the game the game progresses, it's four nil. Then it then it like Dortmund get a couple goals back, but it felt like oh this is just Bayern just putting Dortmund to the sword. Those first thirteen minutes, Dortmund looked as yeah. good if not the better team in this one. They were moving the ball well. They get caught a few times in possession, but they weren't backing down. They weren't sort of uh, capitulating and playing deep or anything like that. And it's just this howler that you can see it just rock the confidence of the whole team. I would argue uh, the one, I think the third goal, the one that Kobel saves but pushes wide and then Muller is there to tap in. Uh, I agree with the commentators that you got to push that wide for a corner or push it out for a throw-in. I, I think Kobel doesn't really respond well, doesn't really get back into this game. I think Dortmund, once they go down three in 23 minutes are very much feeling like we just got to stop the bleeding this felt for all the world like it was going to finish seven nil based on the way that the kind of game was going after that howler uh for to your point about Tuchel though Joe if the narrative coming out of Bayern was that Nagelsmann was like over coaching over preparing he was like too detailed in his game preparation like this did seem a little bit like a team that were just sort of being told to go back to basics. And the and yeah. the couple that really stood out to me were uh, Delict and Davies, both routinely getting yelled at by Thomas Tuchel, but not screamed at for a, a miscontrol or for an errant pass. It was a lot of like calm down. And I do think Nagelsmann had them very revved up and wanted them to play a very frenetic, energetic style. And Tuchel, I think, does the same. He wants them to high press, but at the same time, I think there has to be a control to it. And so it felt like he was doing a good job of sort of uh, man managing in this game rather than trying to like wholly restructure the tactics or anything like that. And I think Bayern were the better for it. Yeah, it does seem that way to me as well, Taylor. I 
Like, this is where I am curious about what Bayern Munich will look like. Likely not this season because there just isn't enough left in the season for us to have a ton of data or or to take a ton away from Bayern Munich other than whatever trophies they win, which could very much be the double between the Bundesliga and the Champions League. But this is where I'm curious because Nagelsmann under, under you know, dur- during his time, excuse me, at Bayern Munich started in this super expansive, like possession style, positional play, back three, like a 3-1-6 sort of shape. And we're trying to be really, really aggressive and control the ball in that way. Very much like unread bully, right? So he's coming from, coming from Leipzig. He helped turn Leipzig into a more possession-oriented team, which didn't do Jesse Marsh any favors. And then you come into Bayern Munich, and he was still being sort of a, a pep disciple. And then at the beginning of this year, it changed. And we saw more of the 4 triple two, a little bit more Red Bully, at least in possession, where players are much closer together. You have those complex, little quick, intricate passages of play, and you try to play quickly with the ball. And, and you try to play vertically as well. And then he sort of shifts back to the back three after the World Cup. And you go more expansive. So I'm I don't really know what Thomas Tuchel was uh, what what Nagelsmann, excuse me, was trying to do and what he felt like was the absolute best way to play with Bayern Munich. Tuchel comes in, we know, we know what Thomas Tuchel is going to do when you give him enough time. He talked in that same interview with ESPN about like he said we didn't have nearly enough possession. Like this guy wants to live and die by controlling the ball. He wants to have the ball for every second of the game, other than the time when it's in the back of the opposition net. So I, I don't know if players really are are tired of having the ball all the time and want to go back and be a little bit more transition heavy. I, I'm not sure that Tuchel's the coach for that. So it'll be a very interesting next you know year or so if Tuchel gets that long, given how many managers are coming and going. It'll be very interesting to see what this team looks like and, and how the players respond. Uh, Graham, any positives to draw from Dortmund from this game? I mean, a couple of consolation goals, but... I mean, I guess the fact that they didn't fold in the second half, this could have been a lot worse than 4-2 for them, is a silver lining of sorts, but maybe the worst silver lining in history, because that first half was an absolute mess. I I think it's fair to question Dortmund's mentality as a team after this match, because those, those first 25 minutes were embarrassing as Taylor mentioned they actually looked pretty good until the Kobo mistake um they were holding on to the ball and Bayern hadn't done anything until that point but as soon as that goal goes in Dortmund crumbled and, and it was interesting in the post-match to hear Muller say that he felt that too as an opposition player on the pitch you can always count on Thomas Muller for a, hmm. a candid quote and he, he revealed that the Bayern Munich players were very much aware that Dortmund's mentality had completely snapped in that moment and they exploited it and they didn't look like they wanted they wanted the ball. The positional discipline went. Space opened up everywhere. So it was the stuff of Dortmund's nightmares. And they're still in this title race. They're only two points behind now, I believe, at the top yep. of the Bundesliga. So there is an opportunity for them to react. And they don't have to play Bayern Munich again this season, which is a positive for them. But this is going to be a real test of... A few weeks ago, I said something similar about Arsenal. They, they lost a couple games and they have responded really well. They've won seven in a row. We now need to see something similar from Dortmund. I'm just not sure if we if that's going to be the case. Do you feel... Actually, Graham, I, I had a point I wanted to make about Thomas Muller, but now I want to go back to Dortmund for a second. What do you feel like a response looks like? Aside from just winning, like are there other personnel you think could have been involved? I'm coming to you because I know Joe will just say Gio Reyna over and over and over again. Uh, but like, <laughs> like I, I just I think with this loss... I hear you, and I think at times this season I've been too inclined to think like, oh, here we go, this is Dortmund being Dortmund. But when when 
this game happened. I was at a five-year-old's birthday party, uh, and your message came through about, like, oh, Dortmund. And I saw the score and thought, like, ah, oh, they're 1-0 down. Like, this can turn around. And then when I checked again, the scoreline was worse. And then when I watched this game and realized how that first goal happened, it just felt like, oh, no. Like, this is, across the board, the absolute worst thing that could happen. And I struggled to see the things that could happen for them to, to turn it around. I think Mats Hummels, after the winter break, had looked like a real leader for this mm. Dortmund team. So for him to start this game on on the bench um, and then come on, I wonder if maybe just his experience of having been in that situation before, obviously as a former Bayern Munich player as, as well, maybe that helps. Because I think Emery Chan, in the second half in particular, Chan was maybe one of the few players who, along with Bellingham, I have to say, it felt like his pride kicked in and all of a sudden thought, right, wait, this can't be a 7 or an 8-0 because if it's if this is a 7 or an 8-0, this, the title race dies in that mm-hmm. moment. I think 4-2 just about keeps it alive. So I think maybe just a, a little bit more leadership from Dortmund. Beyond that, I'm struggling, to be honest, to give you anything sort of tangible yeah. or tactical because it was just so comprehensive from Bayern Munich. I think... Thomas Tuchel going back to the sort of basics of let's have inverted wingers and let's have a back four and let's have a double pivot and let's have Thomas Muller in behind a central striker and let's play a central striker. By minute, it just felt like the muscle memory kicked in for them in this match and there was nothing really that Dortmund could do. So I don't really have an answer. I think a response after this match is just to pick up from where they left off before this match and start winning games again. And then Joe Giorena, just over and over again. Yep, you took the words right out of my mouth, Taylor. <laughs> Uh, well, then I will take us in a different direction. Uh, long-time listeners may be familiar with the term Muller Hello. I don't know how many of you all are actually familiar with that one, but it's one we came up with. It's the opposite of the Irish goodbye, where you just leave a party without saying goodbye. You just sort of disappear, and nobody knows where you've gone. The Muller Hello is the exact opposite, when Thomas Muller just shows up in random places and has no business being there, but somehow is there. Uh, both of his goals in this game are definitive examples of Muller hellos, where he just, uh, for the first one, he is in the exact right spot to finish off the flicked on corner. But then for the other goal that's spilled by Koble, he continues his run. He's making a run through the middle. And it's just one of those, like, I don't know how he knows exactly where to be. And it's a good finish as well, because it is from an angle. But both of those are him just appearing in places he has no business appearing in to then somehow score goals. Uh, it's what makes Thomas Muller special. And... Uh, an invigorated, happy goal-scoring Thomas Muller is probably not something that the uh, the Bundesliga title challengers want to see. Indeed. All right. Elsewhere in the Bundesliga, Union Berlin with a 3-0 win over Stuttgart, keeping them in third place. Four points off Bayern, two off Dortmund. Their best ever season. Sensational stuff from Union. Good stuff for them. Let's uh, move it. keep it moving to the Premier League. Back to the Premier League, I should say. Man City 4, Liverpool 1. No Haaland, no problem for Manchester City. A comeback win, in fact, for Manchester City after Mo Salah put Liverpool ahead in this one. A um, lot of narrative, Graham, around this game was Jack Grealish. Uh, there was mm. that moment where before the 2-1 goal, which he set up, he sort of came back as a last man as a defender yeah. as well. He was all over the shop in this game. He was, and this was probably the best I have ever seen Jack Grealish in a in a Man City shirt. He has had a good season, and there have been some big moments and big games from him, but the criticism made of him is that he needs to have more of a sustained influence on matches, and that's exactly what he did in this game. He has had to change his game to suit Guardiola, and I think we saw those changes in this in, in this match, and one of those changes was clear in that moment that you referenced there, Ryan, where he has to race back to stop a Liverpool counter-attack. It's Mohamed Salah squaring for, I want to say, Diogo Jota in the middle. 
and Grealish is the last man back. And if Salah gets that pass through, it's 1-0 to Liverpool at that time. You would fancy Jota to finish that off. 2-0 Liverpool, that changes the dynamic of the game completely. But Grealish races back, he makes the interception, and then a few minutes later, he's forward uh, setting up Alvarez for the equaliser. So I think in those two moments, we see his productivity on the attacking side of the ball, but also his improved defensive work rate. And in possession, I think he's making quicker decisions. He's not taking so many touches. There's still a couple moments. There was one moment in particular, I think it was De Bruyne, who was, uh, there was a clear path to setting him in behind the Liverpool defence. And Grealish hung onto the ball a little bit too long, but it was 4-1 at that point. So there's still improvements that he can make, but you can see how Guardiola is changing him as yeah. a player. And when he's in this form, he is exhilarating to watch. And look, I don't know if any player is worth £100 million, but when you see this sort of performance, it justifies it that little bit more. Yeah, a, a key thing for there for me would just be watching Pep watch Jack Grealish. Uh, Grealish has one where he tracks back in the second half and sprints 30 yards to, I think, slide in and win a loose ball. I think he puts it out for a throw-in for Liverpool. But Pep Guardiola standing right there just goes straight up hands in the air and just starts like cheering and then clapping. And then if you watch the way Grealish comes off, it's just a full bear hug from Pep Guardiola. And it's one of those where Grealish is expecting, they're like, ah, good game hug, and then he continues to walk. And Pep does not let go and sort of like in a very Pep intense way, talks into his ear. And and it's like a good five second long hug. I'm going to say five Mississippi second hug at that. Uh, And so I think for Pep to be as elated as he was after that game and to talk about how it was almost a perfect game from them I think a lot of that has to do with the the tactical nuances that he employed here but that Jack Grealish is doing all of the things that he's being asked to do and doing them all well has to make Pep Guardiola pretty pleased and and two other players who I thought performed very well in this game and the reason I'm highlighting them is because I think they are very Pep Guardiola players as well are John Stones and Julian Alvarez so start with John Stones because I think I don't think he gets the credit that he deserves because I can't think of many central defenders who could do what he did as a midfielder in this game. Phil Jones. So he's <laughs> Phil Jones did not do <laughs> this one. for my United. This is a different sort of central midfield uh, performance when Phil Jones played in central midfield for Manchester United. But John Stones played in... Uh, I'm reluctant to call it a double pivot because when a Pep team, it's not quite as rigid, rigid as that. But he plays alongside Rodri in the midfield for, uh, for City in this game. And just look at his role in the third City goal. So you'll need to go back and rewind it a little bit um, to look at the build-up and possession for that goal. And he's playing the ball around the corner. He's bouncing passes around. He is just so good in the ball. And he gives City another option of playing in that sort of double pivot, which then allows De Bruyne and Gundogan to get further forward. And then finally, a quick beat on Alvarez, because I think at this moment, he has to be the best second-choice centre-forward in world football. He played a role in three of City's goals... He <laughs> he played he uh, yeah he played a role in three of City's goals uh, goals he obviously scored one himself his performance was so good that and I'm kind of reluctant to raise this discussion point because it can get a bit heavy handed but City looked more like a Pep Guardiola team with Julian Alvarez in the team than Erling Haaland For and sure. that's not me saying that they're be- they're better with Alvarez over Haaland Haaland obviously gives you a lot as an in- individual but he has a more typical Guardiola number nine in the way that he's good in tight spaces, he plays those little one-twos, he drops drops deep, he links up, and yeah, I think at this moment in time, for City to have him as a rotational option, as an option on the off the bench, is is just ridiculous. Frankly. Yeah, Grim, Grim, that's a great point because 
Alvarez is more like a city number nine because Erling Holland is like completely unique, right? Erling Holland isn't an anybody number nine. He's an Erling Holland number nine, running in behind the back line at, at ridiculous speed and, and always popping up in spaces where you don't quite expect. And somehow that space is always the back post for for a goal on that side. It's ridiculous. And Alvarez does help City manufacture more control in games. And we saw it in this match. And I don't know who the, the right player is for City. The fact that Pep can choose between the two, I think, is, is probably right where he would want it. But City in general were fantastic in this match. Graham, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up John Stones because I had the exact same note on him that you did. Absolutely unreal in midfield. And, and the fact that he can come into those spaces and play like a, a complete 360-degree central midfielder is absurd. And so he deserves credit for that. City in general deserve credit for this performance. They were dominant, right? They do go down early. But in general, this was the City performance. Like, this is what Pep Guardiola builds to. Taylor, I love your your note about Pep's Jack Grealish hug. I'm guessing he whispered into Grealish's ear like, you are the greatest human being that has yes. ever walked the earth, right? I mean, it's... You are my Pep child was, now. <laughs> Pep was jazzed about this performance, and he should yeah. be. This is the kind of game that makes you realize that City very much could do something this year, right? They've been second federal in the title race for most of this season, and they're still eight points back. Granted, they have a game in hand, so it could be five points back. But they're behind Arsenal. The odds are, are not in their favor, but they're also not as wide as you think. Arsenal have a 52% chance, according to 538 when I checked this morning, of winning the title. That does leave a decent amount of wiggle room for everyone else, and in the Champions League, it's no gimme to go up against Bayern Munich, who I think you know is, is one of the other probably one of the other two strongest teams in the competition alongside City. Like That's not going to be an easy one, but if you get through that game, which is no guarantee, but if you get through that game, you break into the semifinals, Like this is, this is doable, right? City could come out of this with one or two trophies, and with this kind of performance, if they string these together, uh, I think they'll be favored to do so. Yeah, this match for me was a reminder that this title race really isn't over because it feels like City are playing their best football of the whole season right now. They've yeah. scored 17 goals in their last three games, which is insane. They've got Southampton and Leicester in the Premier League, which you would expect them to pick six points up out of uh, six there before that game at home to Arsenal. They've already beaten Arsenal this season. So I'm, there's a lot of ifs and buts here, but let's just say they win their game in hand, it's five points. Then they beat Arsenal, it's two points. All of a sudden, that gap doesn't feel very comfortable for an Arsenal team that we have seen them grind out results over the last couple of months, and they deserve credit for that. The old cliche of that's a sign of champions. But nonetheless, right now, it feels like Manchester City are peaking at the right time, and I can't imagine that this match was very fun for Arsenal fans to watch. I want to stick with John Stones, sort of, for a moment. Was this Joe or Graham, whoever wants to take this one, was this a like a new wrinkle for City? I think it's something we've seen in bits and pieces throughout the season and at different points, even I think going back to last season. But the yeah. idea of John Stones basically just being a holding midfielder as opposed to being the sort of nominal right fullback who then moves inside, for Pep to start him there and go with like basically a 3 two, two, three sort of shape without really having wingbacks. It, it just feels like a, a very sort of different evolution to this City team and gives them so many different looks and so much strength through the middle. I, I do struggle to think of how teams can sort of handle that, especially when you still have the talent out wide that Manchester City do. I'll, I'll defer to Joe, but I know John Stones has played the position before a few times. He's done it in the League Cup <laughs> a couple of times. I'm, I'm definitely, that's yeah. definitely in my locker somewhere that he's done that before. I, I think... Pep sees him as his Beckenbauer, basically. He couldn't go between the positions, basically. Joe. Yeah, yeah, Ryan, I think you're I think you're right about so much of that. We've seen Stones 
in midfield for stretches for years now, right? Like we've seen this back even earlier on in Pep Guardiola's Man City tenure, but it, it seems to me that this is the most consistent run and the best quality performances we've seen from John Stones in that spot. This wasn't new for this game. We've seen it, you know, several times earlier on in the season. I think about that, you know, seven nil is that what it was against Leipzig in the Champions League? John Stones was in midfield for that in possession. And and even more broadly, like Pep pushing one of his fullbacks into midfield is very much not a new thing. Like we've seen that yeah, for, yeah. for years totally. and years. But Stones in particular, Taylor, to your point, like new-ish, at least at this level for this long in my view. I think maybe I asked it poorly because I didn't mean just to focus on John Stones. What I mean is that the idea of a three-two-two-three without like those wingbacks coming back and giving you defensive cover out wide without John Stones, I never saw him move back into that fullback spot in this game. It felt like he was just a central midfielder, and they weren't really concerned with that. It felt like they spread their their three center backs sort of wide enough to cover the channels as they needed to. Then they had the two in front who could cover those half spaces, and and you're fine. It just it felt different to me in that way. I know Stones has done that. I know he's played sure. central midfield. I know he sure. can transition into it. But for him to just be there and them not have outside cover, that felt novel to me. I didn't I didn't see as much of that as you did. I'd okay. have to go back and watch that in in particular more clearly. Like I think about Liverpool's goal. It comes with City pressing in a four four two shape, right? Stones is back at right back. Like they're they're very much in there Pep realizing that he needs more defensive cover a year or two ago and he shifts into that four four two and it's kind of stuck ever since. They're in that shape at the same time, Taylor, to your point. City controlled 68% of the ball in this game, right? So they had the vast majority of the ball. And when they didn't have it, they were like counterpressing a lot of the time. So Stones, for the vast majority of this game, was absolutely centrally. And the center backs did have a lot of ground to cover between them. Nathan Ake staying home as sort of the left back center back hybrid. So I'd have to go back and, and mm-hmm. watch it in a little bit more detail. But, you know, I think maybe that's just a function of how dominant City were here. That's fair. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, the other thing, I agree with what you all said about Alvarez. I feel like there's a chance he starts the Champions League game, and if it doesn't go well for City, then everybody's like, oh, Pep overthought this. How do you start him and not Holland? But I think we have an answer for why that might be the case from this game. The other player that I wanted to spotlight, since we haven't talked about him yet, is Riyad Mahrez, who I think is another one that doesn't always get a ton of credit, is sort of the the odd man out when it comes to the hype for Man City, but plays a role in at least the first three goals. And he has the run down the line and then the dribble inside uh, that sets up the first goal, the equalizer. Uh, he's involved in the second. Again, I think, yeah, he has the uh, spreads diagonal wide for Mares. Mares first time ball across for Alvarez. So it's a great first time ball from him. And then Mares, like combining with Alvarez in the, in the 18 to set him up to get the goal or to set up the goal. Uh, it just felt like Red Mares is another key part of this team and does the very specific things that Pep Guardiola wants him to do. And he does them very, very well. So he just becomes this sort of reliable plug and play player that Pep doesn't even have to think about. It, maybe Pep even forgets to hug him at the end because he's just that reliable. He just knows he's going to get the job done and then and then uh, go on about his business. Yeah, Pep too busy giving high fives to opposing yep. substitutes in this game to, for that kind of business. Uh, some that, was, uh, that was something. That was yeah, something. indeed. Uh, yeah. Jurgen Klopp after this game saying there's nothing good to say about this game. We cannot not have challenges in key areas. We cannot be that open. I cannot explain it. I just can't describe it. Uh, Jurgen Klopp not even blaming the wind or the grass or ghosts or anything on this one. So, you know, it was comprehensive, this defeat. Uh, Arsenal 4, Leeds 1. Fun that there was two 4-1 scorelines on 4-1 April 1st. 
I like that kind of symmetry. Uh, restoring Arsenal's eight-point lead uh, right after the City game did this one. Uh, Gabriel Jesus with two goals in his first start since uh, his injuries. First goal since October here as well. Uh, Newcastle 2, Manchester United nil. Taylor's face suddenly goes a little ashen as I mentioned that scoreline. Newcastle overtaking United into third place here. United, Taylor, without a win in their last three games since their League Cup final win over Newcastle. A fully deserved win this one for Newcastle, I might have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know I know the United players and Eric Ten Hag have come out and said that the intensity wasn't there, that Newcastle, I think Luke Shaw had the temerity to say they weren't even the better team. They just worked a lot harder. They wanted it more. It's like, no, they were the better team and they wanted it more. Right. They did both of those things. They were dominant across the board. This was a deserved win for Newcastle, who looked excellent, who looked like they believed in themselves. Like In, in contrast to Dortmund, Newcastle teams of the past have had these slip-up moments. They have had these moments where it feels like, okay, maybe they're turning it around, maybe they're figuring something out, and then they're not able to sort of overcome. In this case, in this case they do, and did so comfortably. And Manchester United did not look up for this one. I think the fixture congestion is partially to blame, but it does also feel like there is... They have one of these like every month or every couple months. They have a just a, a bad result where they do not look like they are motivated. They do not look like they have what it takes to really kick on and certainly not challenge for the Premier League title, but even some concern about their top four aspirations with the way they're playing and the form they're in. Casemiro coming back in will help that. But between Manchester United looking as bad as they did and then the other reason why I was ashen-faced, Ryan, is because ever since the Leeds All or Nothing... Uh, documentary on Amazon. I've had a soft spot in my heart for Luke Ayling, and my goodness, was he bad against Arsenal. I think three of the four goals are are directly his fault. Uh, one of them, he is just beaten straight up and almost falls over. One, he keeps everybody on side. I forget what he does for the first one, but it's not great either. He is a player... I had this in the show notes. I, I feel like needs to make a move to Major League Soccer, and that's not even meant as a shot at MLS. I just think he he would be a very good defender in MLS because I don't think he'll be asked to do nearly as much as he is asked to do for this Leeds team playing at the high level they're playing at. I think with Major League Soccer, I think he would be a captain center back that would be a difference maker for a team that needs one. So that feels like a very smart signing from for an MLS team. Uh, and for Leeds, I do not think he is at the caliber they need anymore. So maybe a good uh, departure for them as well. Huh. Uh, plenty of other big t- uh, big games in the Premier League, I should say, this weekend. Perhaps a, a big highlight we should mention, Graham. Brighton 3, Brentford 3. Brighton coming back three times in this one with uh, Mr. McAllister uh, earning a point with a late penalty. Yeah, this was the Premier League equivalent of the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, Spider-Man meme <laughs> uh, with two clubs punching above their weight, good recruitment, good coaching, Good football. This was super entertaining, as the scoreline suggests. You know, I, I don't think there's been a 3-3 draw in history that wasn't super entertaining. Um, but it was quick and attack-minded, and Matoma scored a wonderful lob from a goalkeeper assist, a rarity there. And then Ivan Tony scored 90 seconds later, and then a stoppage time penalty for Brighton to salvage a point. I love watching both these teams play, although I didn't love Aaron Hickey giving away the penalty in stoppage time for Brighton to snatch a point. But a a, a fact that came out of this game, they mentioned this in Match of the Day, which was quite remarkable, all 10 of Brighton's outfield starters had at least two shots on goal in this game, which is the first time that that has happened since they started gathering shot data in the Premier League. So that kind of tells you what this match was like. Indeed. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, plenty to get to on the continent and in MLS and much more back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're going to turn our attentions to Italy. Napoli won again. Wait, they didn't win again. 4-0 <laughs> to AC Milan, Graham. What happened here? Rafael with two goals here, moving Milan up into third. This is the first of three meetings between these two sides, lest we forget they're going to face each other in the Champions League quarterfinals. Milan will be hoping those quarterfinals go like this yeah. game. Absolutely, because this was AC Milan's best performance of the entire season. This was probably my favourite game of the whole weekend, just because it was a reminder of how good this AC Milan team can be, how good they were at points last season when they won the Scudetto. And it was also a reminder of, while Napoli have been exceptionally good this season, there's still this sense that maybe they won't fulfil their, their full potential. Maybe they'll fall short in the Champions League. And, and it was a reminder of just the fragil- fragility of these sort of things. For Napoli, a big issue for them was the absence of Victor Osman because when Napoli get pressed, they usually have that out ball and they can go long to Osman, who is an alien and does so much with service that isn't always that great. They can hit him with crosses. They can send him into the channels. He makes something out of nothing all the time. But he was missing for this game. Simeone started this game, which is slightly surprising to me. I thought Raspadori might start, but it was Simeone from the start. He is a good striker, but he is a very different sort of player in that he needs to have teammates closer to him. You need to service Simeone to get the best out of him. So not having Osman meant Napoli just didn't have a way to play through the, the Milan press, which was incredible. The, the intensity and the energy that they played with was remarkable, particularly because we haven't seen that from them in, a, in such a long time. They were first to so many second balls. They played with pace and physicality. They were skipping through tackles. Rafael Leao scored a couple of very Rafael Leao goals in this game. Pioli got things right as well. He switched to a back four, which I think the idea was to create more space for Liao and Brahim Diaz further forward so that they didn't have the wing backs on, on top of them. And that worked a treat because there was huge areas of the pitch for them to stride forward. I thought Sandro Tonali was excellent. I thought Calabria was excellent at getting close to Kavaratskalia. Um, and the players off the bench made an impact as well. So it's difficult to envisage how this match could have gone any, any better for Milan, particularly with that quarterfinal, as you mentioned, Ryan, just around the corner. Indeed. That fourth goal for Alexis Selimakis, Graham, I, I, oh, I was yeah. watching it. It looked incredible, the snaking through the middle. But the more I watched it, the more I thought, they've just let him walk through the middle there. And there was a moment five minutes after that where Salamakas almost scored an even more ridiculous point. And it, it was at that point I was audibly laughing alone in my living room at what <laughs> AC Milan were doing because it was an absolutely sensational performance. I think it was probably the best performance of the whole weekend, even better than Man City's against Liverpool. That's how good it was. Wow. There we go. Uh, Lazio with a 2-0 win over Monza uh, 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 to stay in second place. Inter uh, relinquishing their grip on the title race with a 1-0 loss to Fiorentina. Their third de- uh, successive defeat, that was. And Roma with a 3-0 win over Sampdoria to stay in fourth. Heading over to La Liga, some big wins for Barcelona and Real Madrid. Barcelona dunking on Elche. Um 
poor old Elche. Uh, a brace from Robert Lewandowski helping a 4-0 win. First title since 2019. Kind of seems like it's kind of inevitable now, Graham. Those pulling those levers, yeah. those levers are paying off, at least on domestic terms. Yes, yeah, certainly in domestic terms, I think that title is in the bag for them. This was complete dominance for them. I think the the main positive for Barcelona, other than three points and a step closer to the title, was a goal for Ansu Fati. And it was a very nice goal, um, which was important for him given the chat about his future Papa. at the moment and the recent comments by his father, who says he wants his son to leave Barcelona, which I don't think is really helping matters at all. He is just such a talented player. And his goal was a reminder of that. I would like to see Ansu Fati come good at Barcelona, but he is under pretty serious pressure at the moment. Indeed. Uh, Real Madrid with a 6-0 win over Real Valladolid as well. A hat-trick in seven first-half minutes for Karim Benzema. Yeah, that was all right, wasn't it? He, he's, he's ridiculous. And Real Madrid were so comfortable in this game that they even gave Eden Hazard some game time what? in the league for the first time what? since September. I know, I know. <laughs> and they also gave game time to uh, Audrey Zola and Jesus Vallejo, both of whom I'd forgotten were even Real Madrid players at this moment. So basically, wow. all those players that you forgot about that were still at Real Madrid got a game in this one because they were so comfortable and Valladolid were very bad in this game. Oh, how nostalgic for Real Madrid fans to see that. Uh, in Liga, Paris Saint-Germain getting a 1-0 loss at home to Lyon. Messi whistled by the crowd as rumours spread that he has made contact or his party have made contact with Barcelona for a potential return. Let's turn our attentions to Major League Soccer. Joe Lowry, the big news, St. Louis's streak is over. Minnesota with a 1-0 win at City Park. All capital letters. Each letter as important as the last. Uh, Minnesota in their lovely kits for this one. It's, it's wild. So I was out for most of Saturday evening going to, to watch the Phoenix Rising game. So I, I wasn't as online during a lot of the MLS action on Saturday as I usually am. Is it just me? Or has there been, like, not a peep about St. Louis's streak being ended? Like, it, it's been very, very quiet to me. It feels like it should be the big story. And maybe I just missed it all and Twitter was a buzz, um, if Twitter even is, is still a thing. Um, like, <laughs> I, I thought there would be a much larger reaction to this, but it kind of seems like everybody was in the same spot of, yeah, it was, it was coming eventually. Minnesota United are, are you know sneakily good and very much capable of pulling off road wins in this league. And that's exactly what happened. Adrian Heath's team came down to St. Louis. They won 1-0. to They didn't really uh, step all that high. Minnesota were, were much more defensive. They forced St. Louis to bring the game to them. And Roman Berkey talked about it after the game. It's it's hard to maintain your level and your focus after your 5-0-0. Like, it's really, really hard to do that. These streaks tend to come to an end, and St. Louis's did certainly on Saturday. Joe, you got to give it two more games. You got to go for the next game draw, then the game after that loss, and then all of the coverage is the bubble is burst. Are St. Louis in trouble? Is this their their comeuppance? I think that that will that will come. I feel like people are keeping their powder dry until they have a more compelling Fair. argument, which I think is unfair because I think everything that Roman Berkey said is true. When you started off the way they have. Not even complacency. I think it's just it's just difficult to maintain, especially with MLS being MLS. Uh, but I have I have no doubt that St. Louis will continue to do things, especially if people people keep giving them the ball in front of goal. <laughs> uh, Cincinnati with a one 0 win over Miami to keep Cincy riding high in the East. Uh, Joe, we had an Olympico scored in Toronto, yeah. a wind assisted Olympico. The wind doing most of the work. The wind <laughs> getting that one in. It's a, it's a great hit, wind or not, by Federico Bernadeschi on the right side for Toronto. 
I was watching back through this clip. I also missed all of this on Saturday, so I was watching this back through yesterday, and I hadn't seen anybody tweet about it. I know people did. This I literally did just miss, though. What a goal. Like, you don't see these very often. You don't see them often and and anywhere in the world. I believe, did Charlotte not score an Olympico last year, Ryan? I think Jordi Alcivar scored one against Atlanta United. So now now it's level. It's all even. (laughs) And uh, overall, like a, a decent performance from Charlotte. Both the goals that give up are offset pieces, which is not ideal. But Josviak, who's a player that I've been very hard on, gets a goal, his first ever goal in MLS as a designated player or otherwise. He's playing on the right side. In general, I felt pretty good about tipping this game, I think, in the the Patreon episode we did as one of the more aesthetically pleasing games to watch in MLS. Charlotte, I, I really enjoy watching. Like, I have a lot of fun watching them, whether they're good or not. And they did a lot of good stuff in this game. Toronto are still not at their peak levels. But, I mean, overall, this was a fun match between two teams that maybe are both better than they're showing right now the jury's still out and i guess that makes it entertaining too oh joe going up in the power rankings of my heart talking Aww. about charlotte in positive terms Aww. taylor uh, we had the sounders going second in the west with a 2-0 win at la galaxy mm-hmm. greg vanny not pleased by the lack of handball call i don't think that was a handball uh knew who had the hands behind the back then there's the argument of does he make himself bigger or does he move the elbow to block it i think that's all Slightly ridiculous, and I think a lot of it has to do with Greg Vanny desperately trying to find something to complain about that isn't himself or his players or the Galaxy uh, on the whole. Uh, but for for LA, now 12th out of 14 in the West, uh, fans are still very angry about the contract renewal for Chris Klein, their GM slash boarding director slash I forget what his title actually is. Uh, and some of that relates to the the like designated player scandal that, that they were docked money and and not points but just money and I think he was suspended for a while but mostly it just seems like they're just frustrated with the way things have gone for the galaxy the way things have been for the team uh, uh, in recent seasons not just missing playoffs but certainly not coming anywhere close to what LAFC have been do- LAFC have been doing so I think uh, rough times for the galaxy rougher times for Sporting Kansas City still and even rougher times for Colorado uh, but the galaxy I think. Definitely not expecting to be 12th in the West at this point. Indeed. All right, we should go to NWSL, Joe, but not before uh, any other MLS business. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were a lot of, I thought, fun games around the league this weekend. Atlanta United get a a really impressive 1-0 result at home. This is the type of game that if Atlanta United want to be making swings close to the top of the Eastern Conference, that you want to not just be in contention to win, but to expect to win. And in general, I thought they were were strong in this particular matchup. Vancouver, Taylor, I'm surprised you didn't mention them. Get a 5-0 win over CF Montreal. Taylor Rockwell's uh, first favorite MLS team, sorry, DC United, have a really, really strong performance. They have been better than the results have shown this year, and so I want to give them credit for that. And Columbus as well. I kind of said, you know, we we shouldn't take anything away from that 6-1 win over Atlanta last week during international break. They come out this week and beat RSL 4-0, which I think says a little bit about the crew in that they are very capable of winning some games with big score lines this year. It also says something about RSL, who are genuinely dreadful right now. They're 11th, so just above the Galaxy. They're one of the four teams at the bottom of the West on three points through five or six games. Not great for RSL right now in uh, in any way, no matter how you want to twist that pretzel. So that's my, that's my MLS notes. I'll do a couple on the NWSL before we get out of here. Sophia Smith and the Portland Thorns at the moment just cannot be stopped. They've got six points through two games. They were dominant against Kansas City, a team that a lot of folks, myself included, are high on. It seems like Kansas City have, have taken a step back from where they were last year. And Portland, I mean, another four goals for them this week after scoring four to open the season against Orlando. Sophia Smith has three in this game. She is 
the best player in the NWSL by a mile right now. And I am desperate to see the U.S. sort of maximize her ability and, and really come together to function as a unit. Because if they don't, they're wasting one of the greatest players that has ever touched a soccer ball in the women's game. So Sophia Smith was absolutely fantastic. The only other note that I had, I watched this game on Saturday. The Washington Spirit uh, played played their match against Racing Louisville, drew 2-2. They were up 2-0, though. And we saw a fun uh, tactical approach from Mark Parsons, I thought, in the first half in that 4-4-2 diamond shape where you had Trinity Rodman and Ashley Hatch. Both players very much could be at the World Cup. Rodman will be. Hatch may or may not be, depending on Katarina Macario's fitness. But you had those two players up top, and then you had Ashley Sanchez as the number 10. And it was fun. It was a really fun look, super narrow, not trying to be particularly expansive, but trying to, to find Sanchez's feet. Rodman will drift out to the right wing, play some good balls into the box. Those three players were dangerous. Sanchez comes off at, at halftime. But in general, a, a promising performance from the Spirit. I thought a little bit better even than their 1-0 win last week. And then credit to Racing for coming back in this game and grabbing two goals in the second half. Uh, weekend, consider yourself reviewed. An awful lot of ground we have covered in this here show. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contributions as always, my good man. Thank you, my friend. Graham Ruffin, pleasure as always. I hope you feel better soon and I hope your electricity stays um, on. <laughs> it's not been great lately. It's been better today, thank you, Ryan. And I also want to say thank you to Mark Helmer in the TSS Discord chat as well, who ran yes. a series of fantasy, excuse me, football manager simulations yeah, he did. to see which of the three USMNT draft teams would win, win among Taylor, Joe and I. Joe came out on top by a single point where the it difference made on the final match day. Yeah, very close. I was second, Taylor was third, but there was only three points between... First and third place, a three-team group. I guess that is a preview for FIFA. They're studying that to see if they can use that at future World Cups. But genuinely, that was very, very cool to follow that over the weekend. Uh, so, yeah, thanks to Mark Helmer for doing that. I enjoyed it less. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. That's very good stuff. And remember, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want to check out. And go hang out in the Discord. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your services in this here podcast. Right back at you, Ryan. And listener, thank you most of all for joining us on this intrepid journey. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.